Strong Didn't Read, the weekly podcast from the Alan Turing Institute, the UK's National Institute for Data Science and AI. Good afternoon, or morning, or evening, or night, or twilight saga. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Too Long Didn't Read. We read so you don't have to, but you do still have to read the title Too Long Didn't Read, which is still a bit of a drag in itself. Smera, how are you feeling? Last week you were feeling a bit sad about the wonderful English weather. Have you chirped up or have you bought tickets to India? I have bought tickets to India and today there was there was a little bit of snow so that's a bit exciting. Was there? But 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 much happier, much happier. I have a new space heater. I feel warmer. Good. Yeah. Warm inside and out. Oh, good. Right, we better get on with it before our internet shuts down. That's a hint to our first item. This week, we will be looking at internet shutdowns, using AI for art history and exploring how a chatbot can outperform an agony aunt. Something I've been reading about recently, brought to my attention due to the Gaza-Israel conflict, is internet shutdowns. I must say I hadn't heard the term before and reading more into it I feel like I definitely should have. Internet shutdowns in essence are what they sound like, the cutting off or extreme hindering of access to the internet, particular web services or telecommunications by the government or ruling power and have been affected countrywide or more specifically targeted to particular regions. These shutdowns control communities' access to information and communication in and out of an affected area. Smera, I now know that internet shutdowns are a huge problem and have been used before the most recent conflicts. Can you give me a little history lesson, please? In terms of history, communication blockades and probably the destruction of communications infrastructure has been around since we moved to more and more digital means. It was, of course, yeah. you, you know, you could you could imagine armies wanting to bomb a, a telecom tower to prevent people from ground, on, on ground trying to communicate with each other, which you'd yeah. have seen, you know, over 100 years ago. But it does, in fact, exist to this day, except now it's with the Internet. And Internet shutdowns are often used as a reaction to conflicts, unrest, or political instability. Keeping this in mind, Access Now, a human rights organization, has released their mid-2023 report that shows some horrific statistics. Ethiopia has not removed its nearly three-year-long internet blockade in the Tigray region, despite a peace deal being signed. The Israeli Defense Forces have attacked civilian communication infrastructure in the Gaza Strip. Access Now has also reported that India continues to be at the top of the list. They have new blanket blockades in Manipur alongside existing policies on internet shutdowns, which have been sporadically carried out in the region of Kashmir and the Kashmir Valley. As you can tell, it is often in areas of political instability, and usually these blockades are conducted to to strengthen the government's grip on power, as well as the control of information flow in and out of the regions. Yeah, and I suppose it's important to note, if not a little obvious, that if you or I were to lose the internet now for an extended period of time, it would be nothing much more than a massive pain in the arse. But <laughs> we should consider the effect it would have on communities that not only could be in a conflict zone or could be going through an election period desperate for information and communication, but also remote or displaced communities like refugees and those people that rely on the internet for healthcare or education. Yeah, internet blockades can also follow the visit of a high security individual or in Iran's case, they interestingly introduced an internet blockade to prevent cheating and corruption in exams. So it wasn't related. Yeah, it was, yeah, for against cheating in exams and the corruption associated with it. exams at what level? 
at the high school level. Really? I, yeah. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, it was a high school or college level, yeah. Wow, that's quite, seems like quite drastic measures. Yeah. But again, so it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a political conflict, but keeping in mind the number of protests that have taken place in Iran, it's not surprising that following the, the blockade on the exams, they also introduced multiple internet blockades when people were protesting in support of Masa Amini. Mm. And what's imp- important to note here is that as countries push for greater digitization of all of their services, the lack of access to the internet can disrupt the, ac- the access of many people to welfare services, be it food rations or education itself, as you mentioned. It can also disrupt disaster relief, as in the case of Myanmar and yeah. Cyclone Mocha, where people were unable to receive reports of intense weather warnings that could have helped save their lives and their property. Yeah. So I was wondering if the internet is a human right, and I couldn't really get to the bottom of it. I remember last week when we looked at cyber attacks, you mentioned how Estonia have really progressive internet literacy and they consider the internet as a human right. But is it universally recognised as one? So human rights derive from natural laws and are seen to be universal, such as one's access to food and water. And yeah. I think this was also mentioned in the book that you recommended to me, the book of oh, trespass. Yeah, the book of trespass. It, yeah, it was it was book. a very a great book if anyone's interested. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, you have civil liberties or the rights given by the state, and internet access to the internet or d- digital infrastructure would be seen as a civil liberty. Right. So if country A does not think it is a human right for people to get access to an endless stream of TikToks and Instagram Reels. It They can easily influence or cut off communications and the internet. Mm-hmm. But, and of course, in many cases, countries do in fact do this to, you know, as I mentioned before, to restrict the flow of information. But it's interesting because freedom of expression is seen as a human right, but is regularly restricted around the world, be it in France or in India. You see so many cases of it taking place. Yeah. So I was reading some of the articles from the ICCPR, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and um, a few of them, such as Article 19, which states that as everyone has the right to their own opinions and to be able to express them freely. Um, we should have the right to share our ideas with who we want and in whichever way we choose like to me you know that suggests that you could put the internet in there as a tool which helps you realize human rights Mm -hmm. yeah i think it's interesting because i think with the times that are changing human rights should start reflecting the new era that we live in and the new realities that we live in but more specifically if you just work with the laws that are currently available in the articles and the way in which they are phrased one can argue that if the disruption of one's access to the internet is a disruption of one's access to essential needs and their actual fundamental yeah. rights and freedoms like food yeah. and water, then you could argue that it is in fact, uh, you know, it's going against the fundamental rules of... of yeah. yeah, it's sort of more like if it inhibits a human right, mm-hmm. then uh, by association it becomes a human right almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You can make you can use that as a defence. Like if, yeah, if something's yeah. blocking it, then your human right is yeah. affected. Some argue that access to the internet is a human right and that restrictions when they are put in place for whatever reason they may be. These restrictions should meet the principles of proportionality. But it is also argued that in many cases, countries just do not meet that proportionality test. Even though India's signatory to the ICCPR, which you had mentioned, as well as multiple 
G7 statements on the freedom on the internet and freedom of expression, they have routinely introduced these blanket shutdowns and they often hurt minority groups, be it lower caste groups like Dalits or tribal groups. And these are groups that are often already pushed to the fringes of society. So if you digitize Mm. national services, um, like in India, you have the Mahatma Gandhi National Rural Employment Grant Scheme. So MNREGA, but it essentially gives a base, it gives a, it's a form of income subsidy for the people who might not have access to a lot of jobs, which of course is in rural India. And when they digitized these services, a lot of people were unable to access or get the money that they needed to get, which can disrupt the access of not only one person, but their entire family. Their children are dependent on this source of income. And which is why it's really important to talk about internet lockdowns, not merely in the sense of, oh, we're fighting against political unrest, but also in terms of the provision of public services. Historically, internet shutdowns have mainly been perpetrated by a nation's own government, restricting their own people's access to the internet and telecommunications. Um, But Russia have weaponized it um, recently and imposed internet shutdowns on Ukraine multiple times since their conflict began. And more recently, the Israeli government have shut down communications in Gaza. Is this something we can expect more of? Other states shutting the internet down as a form of cyber warfare? It's interesting you bring up cyber warfare because of our previous episode and you yeah. know how hard it is. It's almost is. like I just learned that phrase, <laughs> which I didn't. I didn't know that one. <laughs> no, in, in the case of Russia attacking Ukraine, you could argue that you know, you're, destri- you're destroying civilian infrastructure, which is, of course, enshrined yeah. in, in many human rights doctrines as that they should be protected. But again, in the cyber domain, it's really hard. And we've already explained that in a previous episode. Mm-hmm. But in terms of expecting more of these cases in the future... I think it is just because of the sheer amount we are digitizing and the sheer amount we are relying on internet infrastructure. And and very particularly in the case of conflict areas, controlling the access to the internet can limit the flow of first-hand accounts of brutalities or destruction, wherever they may be. Yeah. And states can use this as a means to prevent what they see as the radicalization of people and the strengthening of networks of people who are opposed to the current government. And it's important to note here that there is and seems to always be misinformation and disinformation on any war, regardless of which side you stand on. Yeah. But See episode one of Too Long Didn't Read. Yes, episode one. Yes. For misinformation. <laughs> and episode seven yeah. for cyber warfare. Sorry, carry on. Yes. But in this case, if you only have sanitized and pre-approved messaging that is being permitted to share to a larger audience, it does contribute to that obfuscation or a disfiguring of on-ground realities. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose to build on that, are we going to experience wider controls by external parties? Uh, and to bring sort of AI back into this chat, um, I recently met a Jordanian-Palestinian who currently lives in the UK and has been posting about Palestinian struggles for years. And up to now, she hasn't had a problem. But recently, she's experienced shadow banning, which is where her posts are seen by significantly less people than usual. So looking into this idea, um, I read a number of articles about users of social media accusing platforms of selectively censoring posts for unknown reasons. Um, I'm guessing AI plays the part of keyword spotter here, Mm -hmm. but 
it's another reminder, isn't it, to be conscious of who we're giving our data to. Mm-hmm. Um, can we expect to see more of our familiar tech and AI companies playing mm-hmm. sort of subtle roles in wider conflicts? Yes. A key element of this, as you mentioned, is the keyword identification. So social media platforms can identify certain keywords or graphic images, be it video or image content, that could potentially be harmful or you know, very graphic in nature, which is often the case when it comes to the reporting of certain conflicts. And you can argue that this is being done for the common good and that this is done to ensure that people aren't subject to um, viewing such harmful content or violent content. But we should also be aware that if shadow banning, as the term is used, does take place, it might be seen as a form of censorship in a very unbalanced way when only certain perspectives are being shared and other perspectives might not reach the audience that it should be reaching. And this is where it gets far more complex. I think that there is a correlation between a conflict that's going on and the number of shadow bans of accounts that regularly cover that region. I know it took place in Kashmir. A number of Kashmiri accounts are regularly, periodically shadow banned for their coverage. And it's very hard to make the linkages between whether a government is directing a social media organization to do it. But Nonetheless, it does mean we have to open our eyes to the control that these organizations have, these social media platforms that yeah. can restrict information whenever they choose to do do so. You know, with enough money, maybe they want to do more and with enough political pressure, they could be forced to do more. So it's... Yeah, yeah. okay, yeah. It's strange, isn't it? You know, we're taught to listen to every angle or voice mm-hmm. before deciding what to believe. Mm-hmm. But when all the voices could essentially be misinformation, mm-hmm. chatbot, or or have massive holes in due yeah. to internet shutdowns or shadow banning. We're not actually getting a fair representation of all the voices. Yes. Yeah, we're all still in a very social network, you know, like the fact that you don't trust them means you also don't, you should also apply that level of distrust to every piece of information you're getting. Oh. Well, let's clear that up. As clear <laughs> as very muddy mud. Trust no one. Let's move on. I was interested to read about the launch of AI Labs this week, a new course run by BIM University. The course will be a hub of research, exploration and advancement in applying AI within the creative industries. I went to BIM, Smera, before it was a university. Brighton Institute of Modern Music, where I studied contemporary songwriting. Oh, that's lovely. I think you need to release your album. (laughs) I have. It's on Spotify. What? Oh my God, send me the link. Send me the link. It's, I... just, it's just my name. But uh, yeah, needless to say, it wasn't like a smash hit. Um, <laughs> I finished university and then went into the employment world and then realised I wanted to be a musician. So I saved up and went back to school. Oh, what did you first study then? <laughs> Media and visual art. Oh, wow. <laughs> anyway, this is not the Jonah podcast and uh, we would have far fewer listeners if it were. So as we know, there are a lot of concerns when it comes to creativity and AI. We've seen the writer's strikes in Hollywood, Mm -hmm. how generative AI is essentially stealing and not crediting artists' work, Mm -hmm. and how musicians are being recreated and sometimes used without their consent. Mm -hmm. But I want to talk a little about the way in which AI can broaden our understanding of art. I was reading about a load of scrolls that were burned and buried in a Roman villa when Mount Vesuvius erupted in AD 79, and recently, with the help of AI, researchers are beginning to be able to read them. It's early days, and so far, the only word we have is, can you guess, the only word from these Roman scrolls, Mara? Nero. Nero, that's a good guess. Um, Food, is it food? Food, it is not. The word is 
purple. <laughs> oh, because of the purple robes of like the elite. Maybe, or maybe just someone was writing their favourite colours. My daughter does that all the time. <laughs> we can't read too much into it, uh, but it was it was it was really amazing. Google it, listener, um, and we'll link it. Obviously, the scroll basically looks like an overcooked Yuletide log. Mm. Um, the research was all part of a competition to see who would be the first to decode a word from this. Um, oh. And uh, yeah, it's really interesting. Anyway, imagine what this technology will allow us to see. I'm guessing it opens doors for loads of historical advancements. Maybe with these methods, we'll be able to decipher more of the cuneiform or symbol-based writings on the clay tablets from Mesopotamia from 6,000 years ago. We could, but I'm actually really, I'm I'm far more interested in deciphering the Harappan script of the Indus Valley civilization. Um, It was a civilization, it was a river valley civilization that flourished in north and northwestern India around the Indus River, interestingly where the name India or Hindustan or Industan comes from. Sorry, but that was a side fact. Good side Um, fact. But yeah. It's been around for ages, but no one has successfully deciphered the script. Like you None have of it. None of it. There's absolutely none that they wow. understand from this. Okay, so there were many theories, all right? There were many theories on what might be the key to deciphering it. And it might be an inscription that's there in a cave in southern India yeah. where they, you know, believe people from the Indus Valley eventually migrated to. Right. There's, it's a very, very interesting story because a study was done by these researchers at MIT and they tried to apply machine learning to the Harappan or the Indus Valley script. Mm. They tried to replicate previous success in deciphering Linear B, which was a proto-Greek language. They managed to train a model to decipher it quicker than um, the two the two people who were actually studying. The, the, I think the name, their names were Michael Ventris and Alice Cobert, who they took six decades to decipher the script, oh Linear B. But with the new machine learning model, they were able to to identify, I think, 67 odd percent of it really well and far quicker than, I mean, of course, it didn't take six decades for yeah. them to do it. Um, but with the Indus script, the issue that the same team would find or anyone trying to use machine learning is that no one knows which language families it might relate to. For Linear B, they had the Eugratic or the Greek. So, the, so Linear B had some family groups, but the Indus script seems to be lost in translation. Yeah. <laughs> so the AI tools being used to analyze fine art paintings and drawings are really fascinating and for me not all easy reading we can now analyze brush strokes to reveal how artists understood the science of optics we can prove and disprove hypotheses about how artists created their work we can collect massive amounts of data from museums and private collections to analyze everything about works of art and categorize them better linking paintings to global zeitgeists and so on we can reveal paintings beneath paintings and scholars even anticipate that we will be able to recreate paintings lost to war, natural disaster, or plain old absent-mindedness. <laughs> it's always in the last place you look. Um, that's nuts, isn't it? That we, we might even be able to recreate works of art that we know existed but no longer do in their physical in the physical realm like what does that mean is that is that it's almost like the um, you know recreating a painting that was never there. Is it actually that painting? It's like the Theseus's paradox of of mm. uh, Theseus's boat being replaced, uh, planks being replaced over time as planks rotted, and then at po- at what point is it no longer Theseus's boat? You know, if we mm-hmm, mm-hmm. recreate a painting based on information we have about the painting, 
is it the painting? Mm-hmm. Or like we mm-hmm. discussed in episode six, I think. Yeah, six. Is a painting all about context and the artist's life experiences? Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. And just to steal Jessie's comment, it where she just noted that it stops becoming Theseus's boat the moment the British Museum steals it for a display. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I'd only add that there might be an issue of anachronism or ahistoricism. So we'd have a model that is using the data that we collect as humans, which we have structured and classified. And it's going to use that data to kind of figure out what a piece of art means or what else it could have meant or where a related piece of artwork could be. And you know, it, you can just imagine where it's going to run into to falls because I've explained the bias problem so many times yeah. in the past. <laughs> but this is more of a temporal bias, you know, but could be other forms of biases as well. And yeah. it might assume that, you know, every tool that we're on the lookout for was all ever made for male use. It might not, you know, understand, you know, what role, um, you know, women and other folks played within certain societies. It might the even... Belt. Yeah, like the seatbelt. Yes. We, you know, it might even say that the earth revolved a new, we, it might make claims that in interpreting a piece of artwork that the people during this time knew that the earth revolved around the sun in like 1000 yeah. common era, which is, just, we, which we know not to be true. And that, you know, if you actually made that kind of claim, you were probably ostracized and beaten up by the church. But, you know, you can imagine <laughs> how those kind of claims, might, but you can imagine like if it makes those kind of assumptions, it might be wrong. But at the same time, it might be good to use a model that doesn't have our own inherent, you know, ideas of what the past might look like and yeah. might find that one answer that could link all of these different aspects together. Ooh, that's a thought. <laughs> so all these methods are amazing and probably inevitable. And I'm sure there'll be loads of interesting things that we can learn about history and art history. But it's bonkers to me when we use it for art creation rather than analysis. Um, Art is the creation formed by experience, process and emotion. The finished painting, song, film or book is the final part of the art itself. It's 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 part of the process. It's just one part of the art. Yes. (laughs) In my opinion. Yes, no, I think uh, you share the opinion of many people, including ethicists. And I think that sentence is pretty empowering, especially for artists facing off with machines today. But you're an artist too, Jonah. How does the machine age <laughs> in art seem to you? Like, Well, I think um, creating my own forms of art, if uh, if I would, I would never probably call myself an artist, but I, I'm an unpop, no, not an unpopular artist. I'm not a popular artist. And I think. See, that's the best kind of artist. Yeah. yeah well, like I think you're it on is. The fringes, it's the most, it's subculture. It's the most freeing. And it was when I, like I mentioned, I went to a music college. That's because I wanted to be a musician. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I did, we did have a little management and a record label and whatnot. Like I, I did release stuff and I realized quite quickly, I definitely don't want to be a musician. I want to play music. I want to make art. Definitely don't want to do it for a living I don't want to tour I didn't really like performing Mm. live Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't like marketing myself etc so yeah in in that respect Mm -hmm. I feel like I dodge a bullet with this argument because I make Mm -hmm. um, whether you want to call it art or just make stuff for myself because I love it and I can't really stop it's yeah and so I think if you're a popular artist then then you might be worried and if you're a mainstream artist you might be worried because the AI reflects the mainstream. It doesn't reflect mm-hmm. idiosyncratic artists who just make stuff in their yeah. bedroom. Songs about yeah. trees. 
you know, that's what I do. <laughs> I'm actually writing a concept album about trees. Each each album, each song is a different tree and the song will reflect. That's really nice. And it won't be like really direct. It will just reflect the, um, the je ne sais quoi of a tree. <laughs> you can tell I'm an artist because <laughs> I spoke in French. <laughs> Let's not talk about me anymore. A couple of weeks ago on this podcast, we talked about how generative AI isn't creating art if it isn't working with emotion and experience. And and I suggested that artists will rebel by not analysing their artwork. The academic side cannot be scraped by AI. And I, and I mean not analysing their artwork um, on mm. online. Uh, so then the AI mm. have got nothing to scrape about the context. So the painting or work mm. will always be available to copy in its physical form, but the context mm. wouldn't. But if you subtract the explanation, then we could find ourselves having to rethink how we interpret art, which I think is a really interesting sort of avenue. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I think I was just mentioning it before that, you know, if we remove all of these inherent human ideas that we have about how the world is and, you know, knowing all these wars existed means you're going to make those connections. Yeah. But it'd be really funny to kind of see how, yeah. you know, art is probably going to be interpreted. Um, but it, speaking of in, misinterpretations, I was looking when, when I was reading into it, I found that um, Jacques-Louis David, um, his painting of Napoleon, it's this massive one when Napoleon's on this horse that's oh, yeah. like, you know, know it just it. looks like it's conquering yeah, yeah. The, the Alps. Yeah. So <laughs> this, it, some people say that this is just not true because in order to cross the Alps, you wouldn't be using such a mighty horse, but you probably would be <laughs> using, using like a, a little track pony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. you'd be using them. And yeah, so it just, it just completely, you know, you need all of that knowledge. How much could yeah. the model be trained on yeah. our understanding of what it means like for, as a human to cross yeah. a mountain? I, I feel like it'd be really funny to think about how future generations are going to look back at our feeble attempts of AI yeah. they're probably going to find yeah. an old Instagram reel that's probably in like I don't know some Instagram museum or something and they'll be like wow they had this tech and they created different types of cows is is that what they did yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there will be AI art will be a thing and we'll have to accept it and we'll have to embrace it and explore it right because it's going to happen like you might as well um, accept the inevitable and, and see what value you can get from mm. it anyway <laughs> maybe the rebellion will be artists turning to live performance Maybe we'll all be doing uh, interpretive dance soon. <laughs> I'm doing one now. <laughs> Don't know what I'm interpreting. Anyway. Do you remember in 2014 when... Wait, do you remember 2014? Were you born then? I, I'm just not going to acknowledge this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Samaritans had a brilliantly well-meaning idea called Samaritans Radar. Basically, it was a free plugin which used an algorithm to allow Twitter users to monitor each other's posts. The algorithm used keywords and phrases to flag tweets which indicated someone might be struggling to cope and would send an email alert to users who had signed up to monitor that account. The people being monitored were never notified or asked for consent. Oh. Uh, great idea in theory, and maybe it saved some people from harm. Mm. But reading that in 2023, it's clear to see there are ethical risks, aren't there, Samara? There are. I think that consent part is honestly really troubling. And yeah, it's a bit it adds sketch. to like the surveillance thing that, you know, no one wants to be around. But I presume in 2014, there was far more like genuine naivety about these things. <laughs> you say I that. I hope there was. You say that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Telling, saying the story of like how this algorithm was able to pick out instances where they might be at risk. 
And I know that a lot of people on the internet who, you know, use humor as a method of coping. And yeah. in using that, they might actually say something which might not be treated as a trigger event. So I don't know. I, I just wonder if like an algorithm is going to pick up on those kind of aspects. Yeah, right. An article that the third member of our team, the silent but vital Jesse, sent me this week is built on a statement from the British Association of Counselling and Psychotherapy warning that the NHS should not use AI chatbots to solve the backlog of people waiting for mental health appointments. There are almost 1.9 million people in England on the NHS mm. waiting list for mental health help or treatment, and wait times can be over a year. The fact that 78% of mental health patients seek help from the emergency services clearly illustrates the scale of the problem. Mm -hmm. Samara, obviously, talking to a human is going to be far more helpful for someone struggling with their mental health. Maybe articulation is a big part of the problem, and only a human will be able to understand the things a patient doesn't say. Mm -hmm. But... Can't we partner with AI to solve some of these problems? Surely getting closer to solutions is better than what it is at the moment. Sure, you can say that with the, uh, you know, that outrageous number of people on a wait list for therapy and even diagnostics for mental illnesses that they might have. And we can see why with, you know, all the years of austerity measures that the NHS has faced that they might want to turn to automation or technology yeah. to help ease their workload, improve their efficiency. At the heart of it, especially with therapy, there is so much depersonalization that might happen for a lot of people, you know, looking for a therapist you need that relationship that's set up with them. Sometimes you might go to two or three therapists before you actually find the one you are comfortable yeah. with. And with a bot, yeah. you know, okay, so I don't like this bot. Who else am I going to go to? You could ask the bot to change <laughs> yeah. its vibe. Yeah, yeah I'm, not, I'm not vibing with you right now. Could you like get me someone else? Like, yeah. you know? Next bot. And of course, with as with any other form of health technology, there are those fears of discrimination. And of course, and very importantly, the sale of extremely sensitive data about someone's personal personal life. I mean, yeah, we have course, those agreements yeah. that a therapist is not allowed to say anything unless what is shared in therapy could harm themselves or others. I, I do, I keep repeating this, but by relying on these machines, we put some of the most susceptible people at risk. Often technology, especially health technology, is used on poorer populations or deprived neighborhoods because public services are just not reaching all of them. Right, but yeah. we need a whole of society approach. You know, I can direct people to see the research that Professor Michael Marmot did with his team. There was one report released in 2010 and another one released 10 years on to see whether those... Um, that advice and those guidelines were implemented across yeah. England to overcome right. these issues. And what the the basis that he the basis of his research was that there are social determinants of health or where you are born and what income class you're born into or social class you're born into determines the future of your life and the health factors that and your health outcomes over time. So oh if you're gosh, born yeah. in a low income neighborhood or a more deprived neighborhood, you're going to live fewer years than someone who's born in a more high income neighborhood. That's and uh, the reason why this is important is because if we start looking into the social the social aspects of healthcare and rather than health administration or hospitals itself, we can yeah. actually reduce the number of people trying mm. going to hospitals in the first place. So, you know, if you're are working two jobs, you don't have the time to cook to cook a healthy meal for yourself and you might turn to uh, more fast foods or the stress of a job might make you pick up smoking and all of these things have subsequent problems to your health. So yeah. basically, this is all to say he suggested with his team that you should have a whole of society approach yeah. to 
um, healthcare. Yeah, makes sense. A study by researchers at the University of Melbourne have shown that for the first time, a chatbot's responses have been perceived as better than a human's responses in a task where humans are required to be empathetic. Guess which chatbot we're going to talk about, <laughs> Mera? <laughs> oh, I wonder. It's ChatGPT. <laughs> it's ChatGPT's birthday this week. Oh, dolly. Happy birthday. Yeah. One year old. If you think you're tired of talking about ChatGPT, don't you think French people are sick to death of talking about farting cats? What does that mean? Do you get it? No. So in in France, if you talk about uh, ChatGPT, chat it sounds a lot. GP, chat is cat. Ch- chat, chat GPT means oh, cat, oh. I farted. Oh, <laughs> and you know <laughs> that is literally apparently uh, what what people are hearing. Chat GPT, you know, cat I farted. Anyway, okay, th- thank you for the explanation. It's funny. That's <laughs> all right. I like to bring some of my academic research mm, into yes, the yes, debate. Yes, that's you know? very important. <laughs> uh, stakeholder engagement, as I've said. That's right. <laughs> So the study uh, used ChatGPT4, ChatGPT4, ChatGPT3 failed, but ChatGPT4 succeeded. Mm -hmm. And they said each of our 400 participants were presented a dilemma along with the responses by both ChatGPT and a professional advice columnist. 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 We didn't disclose where each response was from. About three quarters of the participants perceived ChatGPT's advice as being more balanced, complete, empathetic, helpful and better overall compared to the advice by the professionals. (laughs) What do you think of that, Samara? Are you essentially saying that... This was a form of the Turing test and they could oh, yeah, not I tell guess the I difference. Am. And, <laughs> well, um, they're saying it's better. <laughs> uh, no, I think well, what's important to note in that study is that um, some of the call, the the these are newspaper columnists they're not or magazine columnists yeah. they're not really a therapist they're not trained in that aspect they are not they might disagree with you but if I'll, they're happy to accept the term agony aunt then yeah, maybe they yeah. don't I mean, even that it. term just annoys me but you know it, they're they're not therapy how you would see a therapist they're more of giving general advice and if you want more people to read your work maybe you might use a bit more catchy terms and you have like yeah. six people hyper copy editing everything that's being published as opposed to ChatGPT that, you know, probably is able to structure an argument better in that sense immediately. So I, I don't I don't think this means that ChatGPT is more reliable. Also because at the end of the study, um if you see the if you see the study which is open access and available, they the participants actually said despite seeing feeling like ChatGPT gave better answers compared to this professional yeah. advice columnist. They actually would prefer going to a therapist and they would not oh. turn to ChatGPT. So, you know. I didn't read that far down in the article. <laughs> I, was, I was too excited about ChatGPT. <laughs> this correlates with a bunch of other studies where researchers found that those who are receiving therapy would much rather have a physical therapist and would ra- much rather have someone they can speak to rather than a technological interface, which, again, that whole depersonalization, yeah. it, feels, yeah. it feels off. It's yeah it'd be interesting to um learn about the things that people would tell a machine that they wouldn't tell uh, a therapist you know mm. or a human mm. that's true 
Listeners, from here on in, I will be taking over the post of positive AI newsbringer. Not because I'm some power-hungry entitled Wally, nor because I'm a puppet for evil corporations who wish us all harm, but because Smera is a jaded mid-twenties emo kid and can't handle the optimism anymore. But I mastered false optimism years ago as an armour for life's relentless disappointment. So here goes. Do you want to hear what I have to be positive about in the AI world, Smera? It. Yes, I do. Please also give me some tips on how to, you know, <laughs> deal with the world. <laughs> so what do you have, Jonah? What's what's our news for this week? Well, I thought you would like this one, Samara. I like this one and I thought you would like this one too. It's a great example of AI being created for communities that haven't been very well catered for in the past. Ooh, Your fave topic, right? It's yeah. true. It's true. I do like me some empowerment of vulnerable communities. Yes. So uh, though native speakers of English make up just 5% of the global population, the language dominates the web and has now come to dominate AI tools too. Mm-hmm. Africa is home to approximately one third of the world's languages. That's somewhere between one and 2,000 languages, which is amazing. Yeah. Uh, and although ChatGPT claims to support a handful of those languages, the results are said to be pretty laughable. <laughs> A new tool developed by Jade Abbott and Polonomy Moiloa is trying to use machine learning to create tools that specifically work for people living in African countries and speaking African languages. They have called their tool Vula Vula, which means speak in Sitsonga. And uh, so far, it can identify four languages spoken in South Africa, Isi Zulu, Afrikaans, Sesotho and English, and they're working on more. It's also worth noting that Isi Zulu, for example, is spoken by a whopping 10 million people in South Africa alone. So, yeah, it, th- these aren't these aren't niche languages. <laughs> the tool can be used on its own and we can link it in our show notes as ever in case you are an African language speaker and want to put it through its paces because it's mm. in beta mode uh, or it can be integrated into existing tools such as chat GPT. Uh, it, it matters that Vula Vula and other AI tools are built by Africans for Africans, says Muloa. We're the custodians of our languages. We should be the builders of technologies that work for our languages. It is true. I love that. Yeah. I love so that. So there we go. There's there's something to feel positive about. This is probably one of the few stories that I'm genuinely optimistic about and I'm not thinking about worries in the future. Oh, cool. Well, there we go. We've achieved positivity. Well, there we go. That was Too Long Didn't Read, where we read so you don't have to. We learned that internet shutdowns are a way bigger problem than the name suggests. We learned that Jonah and Smira could bore you for hours talking about art. Is that weird that I'm referring to myself in the third person there? Feels kind of good. Probably kind of weird. Anyway, we also learned that using AI to solve the backlog of patients waiting for mental health help with the NHS is never going to be a simple and effective solution. Thanks to Smera, my podcasting better half, and thanks to Jesse, our eyes in the sky. Jesse might actually be your presenter next week. I'm being dragged off to do other work. <sighs> the cheek. And thank you for listening. We're still taking questions for our Christmas episode, so please email us at podcast at turing.ac.uk or DM us on Instagram at the Turing Inst. Like, follow, share, and spread the TLDR love. Bye-bye from me. Auf Wiedersehen. Adios, hasta luego. Yeah, if I say Nanhog Bertini on this podcast, that means we will be back. <laughs>